Visions Now. Visions Now. Visions Now. Visions Now is resilience. Visions Now is community. It is enlightenment and it's the promising future that we're all working towards. It's Black History Month. Welcome back to another episode of Visions Now. You are currently listening to our Black History Month podcast extravaganza. Four episodes, that's one episode a week, featuring all Black voices on all Black topics. Visions Inc. does not take Black History Month lightly. Diversity, equity, and inclusion work is about dismantling systems of oppression. So we're taking this moment to acknowledge the work of our ancestors ground ourselves in the present and orient ourselves to the future in order to figure out where we need to go in this fight for racial equity. You can follow us on social media. We've got some great Black History Month content going up on Instagram. And you can check us out at visions-inc.org for all your diversity, equity, and inclusion needs. Please enjoy this Black History Month podcast journey can subscribe to Visions Now on all podcast listening platforms. This week's episode is dedicated to Octavia Butler, the godmother of Afrofuturism, a prolific writer and ancestor who has blessed us with a complicated perspective on what Black futures might look like. This episode is also dedicated to the next generation. I sat down with Marcel Selblock Woodruff to get his perspective on how his work with youth has informed his ideas about what the future holds for the Black community. And also to learn about how he incorporates decolonization into his work with young people. My name is uh, Marcel Woodruff. I'm a resident of Fresno, California. I'm a father of three, one boy, two girls, a, a husband to one uh, for 17 years, and a graduate of Xavier University um, in New Orleans and Fresno Pacific Theological Seminary out here in Fresno. Uh, the body of my work is I uh, began this work uh, as a gang prevention intervention and uh, reintegration specialists. And so reintegration, like those who are formerly been incarcerated, we kind of help them build pipelines to, to come back into uh, community whole and whole, holy and healthily. Um, and that evolved into me becoming a community organizer. So currently I am a community organizer, primarily for youth um, who are in what we call proximity areas, areas that are marginalized, uh, disenfranchised and divested in, and they may have, um, maybe saturated with, you know, with gang activity um, and just various other adverse uh, health components that, that really hold communities back from thriving. And I serve uh, at Faith in the Valley doing their criminal justice reform work, uh, their environmental justice work, and the gun violence reduction work. And so through that, we formed something called Advanced Peace, where we brought Advanced Peace uh, to, to Fresno, California, which is an evidence-based model proven to reduce gun violence in the cities by working with those who have been deemed the most lethal and mentoring them. So that's that's me in a nutshell. So I'm black. So I, I'm, I'm black. I did a, 
an ancestry test. And so I know my people are from Sierra Leone, but you know, the, the, there's a, there's a break in the, in, in the history there. Uh, so I identify, um, as black. Uh, and I think that's, yeah, that's, that's me. Black. We can't talk about the future of the black community without thinking about who the youth are today. What would you say are some distinguishing characteristics of the generation that you work with now? So I think for me, working with youth, I've been working with youth for uh, 22 years now. I I began at Xavier and we saw kind of the the proliferation or the or the emergence of, of a really unique time with the you know with the tragic death of like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and with the advent of like social media and technology where these things were able to be communicated and presented in, in real time um to the to the masses and a lot of commentary was was kind of being made on it. And so the the young people I work with now, you know, in 2022 were raised kind of within this social climate. So there's a sense there's an awareness a- around um what it means to be anti-black, what it, what, what mass incarceration is. Um, and even like the dispelling of the myth of a post-racial society, right? So they may, they may not name it in that way, but they do have a, an analysis a, around what's really happening racially and, um, economically in, in society. And so what I, what I, what I do see is, is like this really not weird, but this really inspiring, um, perspective or willingness to to walk away from things right to, to withdraw from things to resist um to resist things and, and i would say in, in a really radical way right so i think a, a lot of what i read and, and saw growing up because you go back to james baldwin who was like you know progress 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 when it's you know when it, when is change really going to come and and young people are now saying no change is going to be now you know because because i can't have it any any other way and so whatever that looks like it looks like but um i do think that young people these days the ones that i work with like especially coming out of the black community processing things they have a really keen analysis on what it means to be human and what it means to be oppressed by systems that are designed to dehumanize and rob people of their humanity and they have a, a strong appetite and energy to to, to challenge it. So. It gives me a lot of hope to imagine this generation that you describe as being willing to challenge the system. What fears do you have when you think about the future of the Black community? We continue to see just the the evolution and the reiteration of of oppressive and and racist practices that are really designed to bar us from participating in history fully and really thriving as human beings. And what, what I often kind of find myself wondering is what is the next iteration going to be, right? So you go from the black holes to Jim Crow to mass incarceration. And as we be, as we continue to, to fight against those things and deconstruct those and, and, and reimagine the system sort of, I don't like it, like, like a mutant heals itself you know, and, and, and adapts and it creates something new. And so a lot of it is like my fears are, are we going to see the next iteration too late? Like, how, how are we going to be barred from participation? How are we going to be marginalized and oppressed um, in this next wave? And will we see it in time? And so a lot of what I do see is um, our, as, so my background is in computer science. And so I'm really keen on like technology. And so just the ways in which we are being kind of barred from 
technological literacy and access and and what that might look like down the line because you're already seeing certain things like in order to to register for court you have to be able to use this app but those who don't have access to technology are you know they get criminalized right and so how how is the situation evolving so that that always is a big fear to me and i have this pressure to to identify before it happens but how realistic is that so that's that's one of the, the lingering fears for me is how is the system going to continue to evolve to to preserve the racial hierarchy that it that it exists to preserve. Yeah, I'm going hey, I can't I can't log into the Zoom meeting, so I get contempt of court, I'll go to jail, right? So it's just what are some guiding principles or frameworks that have been useful for you in working with young people? A lot of what um I use with young people is is a framework that really embraces uh decolonization and anti-imperialism in ways that kind of reverse the flow so like one of my biggest mantras is to let them lead like a lot of times when i first began this work there was just a lot of tokenization of youth let's just get how many can we, how many bodies can we get to, to to hold up this sign and funders would run off and say oh we got 50 youth and so for me um when I got into this work, I, I, I got into it doing this. Uh, it wasn't an after school program. It was a weekend program where I would open up the schools and uh, the kids would come in and we'd just kind of play basketball. There's arts and crafts. There's all these things that, that they can kind of come and do, just to have something to do on the weekends. And the first maybe months that I did it, uh, nobody would show up. Nobody would show up except this one little girl named Frankie. So Frankie came and I would get so super discouraged about it. But I was like, you know what, man, as long as Frankie keeps coming, I'm going to keep doing this. And, and Frankie turned into 3000 kids, you know, 17 years later, you know, but I, I think that having this principle of valuing just of a, of a qualitative analysis of like every one of them is precious. Every one of them is worth it. Um, and every one of them is, is worth the, the totality of my resources and my energy and my being um, guides me in this work. And that's looked like putting young people um, on platforms and on stages. And I had a young guy before this phone call, got a, got a, um, got an email from NASA, you know I mean? This is a kid who dropped out of high school, you know, and we just invested in him. And now he's getting a phone call from NASA to say, you know, we, we let them lead and to put a radical faith and trust in young people that then emanates out into the community. So that's been one of my guiding mantras and, and a little, with a little bit of experience in there. Can you say a little bit more about this concept of decolonization in the context of youth work? Like, what does a decolonized young person look like? And what are some tools or strategies that you could use in a decolonized youth development space? Young people were the, actually the first ones to, to teach me about decolonizing, right? So I was, I was at, a, um, at, at a camp and I was speaking to a young man just about um, W.B. Du Bois and this concept of the, uh, the Du Boisian um, double consciousness, right? Of how how to be how to be a black body in America is to, is to be is to be white, right? And how to, and how we have to constantly be at war with ourselves. And as we were talking about that, he introduced me to this concept of decolonization that he had read from it from an author. So, oh man, what you're saying, Mr. Sale is they call me Mr. Sale is uh, sounds like decolonization. And so I, I used kind of his framework and the way he understood it, and I researched it, and I brought it back to them in ways. Uh, that they could that they could digest like, like what does this really mean how do you give them like historical analysis and how do you contextualize it in a way where they can they can resonate with it and they've they've done a lot to um majority of them have done a lot to really um em embrace it and make contributions to it as well 
And so um, it hasn't been a hard concept for um, young people to get behind. I think it's just about creating the right frameworks and platforms for them to be able to contextualize and understanding it through their own lenses and just allow them to run with it. So decolonized young people, they they buck against the system in ways that makes uh, those like me who may who may be somewhat palatable, you know, to empire palatable to the, the, the colony, right? Because I've I've functioned in it for you know for for nearly forty years. They buck against the system in ways that that make me uncomfortable. But when I get uncomfortable, that's when I know we're kind of going in the right direction. Like, okay, great. And so, like one one thing they've done is really challenged. I, I think it's a good example is the young man who got the call from NASA. He hated school and he often brought in how schools were designed really to to colonize to separate bodies to distinguish who was worthy who wasn't worthy i mean to, to identify who was disposable who was discardable and and who would kind of go on to 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 be accepted within these within these colonized white spaces and so what he's done is say we have to reimagine education in a way that's more cosmopolitan. Right? That's, that's my language, not his, but in, in a way in which everybody genuinely belongs. If you guys can't do that, then we have to continue to, to push back against the system. And so recently we got a phone call from um, Fresno State asking, uh, which is a university out here in Fresno, asking, you know, how, how do we make more young people like him? <laughs> you know, how, how, do we, how do we do that from, from, from college professors saying, how do we do that? in a way that empowers our students because our students often do follow this linear model. They don't really, you know, like they, they, we rob them of, of analytical and critical thinking and they just perform in a, in a way to one day be successful in capitalism. And here you have a young man who is, is thriving, who's, who's, who's doing well, who's challenging the system and he never conformed. Right. So I think that that decolonization for when you work with young people, it, it's not just cerebral, right? It, it metabolizes in their body in a way that that's, that's liberating to them and empowers them to say, "Now nah, this this system isn't humane, and I'm not going to participate in." It. So one tool that I, I do use is art. So we we have a free music studio, and that's been like the easiest way to access young people because <laughs> you know instead of having to recruit, you have young people who just kind of flock to your to your program. And so we have this this uh, free music studio. We have various arts programs that that bring in young people, and then having the tools to help them. Like one is storytelling to help them discover their story through art, through music, through through, through culture, and bringing in educational components like you know, like history of our city, history of our people, history of our state, and so on and so forth. Uh, and also recently, we began to to do um, somatics, so like like somatic therapy, somatic healing through music, and so they'll. So the practice is the young people come in and they'll have, they'll give us, they'll be given an assignment. Bring me a song that makes you just angry whenever you hear it. Bring me a song that makes you sad wherever you hear it, you know, and they'll come in, we'll listen to each other's songs and they'll share it. And it's like a really bonding experience. Cause you, I mean, when you're sharing your music with somebody, that's, that's special, right? You, know, you don't just, you don't just give you a playlist to everybody. And so they'll come in, they'll share their songs and then they'll, they'll, you, they'll unite. And then you ask the question, like, okay, listen to it again, but everybody just be still. And then, Tell me how your body felt while you were listening to that song. Explain to me what's happening in your body, right? And so we walked them through this process, and it's just really deep, really enriching, and it, it creates these these points of connectivity with them, where you kind of bond with them on a soul level. And so I got I have a young guy who who changes complete music platform. He was like, man, you, you're the first person who gave me permission to, to actually talk about my emotions, and and I, and I felt liberated with that. So that's so it's, it's just really authentic relationship. Um, creative, innovative programming, and just real, authentic tools that that build connection and bonding. Marcel, 
from your perspective, how can we invest in our futures as a Black community, especially incorporating a decolonized framework? There are days um, in this work where, you know, the vicarious traumatization and just the, the lived experience and the things you hold in your body really make me super pessimistic. <laughs> and, and I feel like um, there's value in our, our, our united struggle and us continuing to support each other, unite and heal together um, and find meaning in, in, in the struggle. But sometimes I don't, I don't know if the system's ever going to really change if it, or we have to wait for it to implode, you know? But um, I think in my more opt- optimistic days, right? and when, I, when, I, when I'm optimistic, I do feel as if we could, that as if we invest, is that if, if we invest in our future through really centering and focusing on resources and programmings and, and even just genuine relationship and community that centers healing, that we can arrive at a space where we can genuinely unite. Because a lot of a lot of times when I do this work, um, it's easy for practitioners to get co-opted, you know, because they, they the, the divide and conquer method is, is, is alive and well, you know. And so if we and we go into spaces, you know, with, with good intentions, but unhealed. And so we get divided really quickly. So I think that um, really centering and investing in our healing as a community is a good first start. Then we can unite as a people. And then when we unite, we can fight. And then when we fight, we can win. And so like in my optimistic <laughs> lens, that's what I feel, you know, really investing in the healing and wellness of us as a community and as a people and moving toward winning in ways that allow us to live freely and wholly and, um, and authentically as, as a people. So in my work, like at Advanced Peace and, um, with, and with Faith in the Valley, one of the questions that I have introduced to, to our group, to our team, and even, even with our youth is in what ways um, did I perpetuate colonization and imperialism in, in my work today? And how can I show a better tomorrow? And what that looks like, like in a, you know, as we begin to like decar and like these, 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 to decarcerate, like these mass incarceration systems, is it, it forces us to do like a lot of research. And so we learned. It's like the way it shows up because we do like a lot of company, um, a lot of company and like supporting people who are going through like court processes. So in California, they have these things called uh, gang enhancements or gang injunctions, and so a lot of it was that there we had to break this narrative. And so this goes back to the decolonization thing, like an actual tangible example of it. Right? Is we had to break this narrative in the community around the young people that, that we as a community were deeming disposable, right? The ones who had fallen into gangs and violence and, and that there was like this internalized kind of like colonization or, or, or oppression that said, oh, these are the bad ones. These are the bad apples. We, we should throw them away. And so they would get these court cases and, they, and people didn't want to support them. And so in asking that question, like, how, do, how do we show up today in a way that perpetuated colonialism um, and imperialism, how we show better tomorrow, we discovered that a lot of the laws that were on the books around gangs happened, uh, came on the books when the border crossed Mexico and we displaced, and, and America displaced a group called the Californinos and they created these bandit codes. And those bandit codes evolved into gang laws and gang injunctions. And so our unwillingness to hold and love the entirety of, of, of those who belong to us in community was an act of us perpetuating, you know, 
colonization in that we're now enacting and drawing from a system that was designed to displace, right? And so that's um, that's one thing we live by, we move with, and that's one tangible example of how it's really kind of shifted us and shaped us. Because now it's no, no questions asked, you know, if, 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 if a loved one needs support so that they can be free and get the resources they need to, to be free and, and to love freely and to be with their family, there's all hands on deck. So. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. So let us know, how can we get in touch with you? How can we keep up with the work that you're doing in Fresno and beyond? Um, you can follow me. I'm on, uh, I'm, I'm on uh, Facebook as Marcel Cellblock Wizroff. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Cellblock SA. Um, anything that has to do with Faith in the Valley um, is connected to me. So Faith in the Valley, we have a, a Twitter pages. We have Instagram pages. We have Facebook pages and Advanced Peace Fresno. So we have a Twitter page at AP Fresno. Um, and there's also a Facebook page, AP Fresno, and I'm, and I'm involved and interwoven in all of those entities. So if you see them, you see me. Oh, and, um, an, another, uh, another shout out. If you follow, it's called Healthy Fresno Air or the Keyshawn White Healthy Air Experiment. So some of the work we do, I mentioned uh, is environmental justice. It, it emerged from a young man who uh, lost his brother to gun violence and had to reimagine the way in which he was going to move in the world and and, and, and sanctify and, and bless life. And so he designed an environmental justice project that um, that has gone nationwide. He got to meet Obama. So uh, he's still doing a lot of that work. So Healthy Fresno Air or Keyshawn White um, Cleaner Air Project. And I'm, all, I'm behind that too.